Thank you, Dave. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Excellent. My name is Carl Brower. I'm one of the ministers here on staff at the Parkway Church. I am excited to be here with you this morning. I'm eager to look at this text with you. Um, before I do that, though, I do want to uh, point out and make an observation about the relationship that I have with, with Tim Hollis. There's something that we share in common that I think will be helpful for us as we get into this. But before I share that, I thought it might be fun to point out some of the differences between Tim and I. Some of the differences are very obvious, right? Uh, I am a clean-shaven guy. Tim kind of has this Duck Dynasty situation happening, right? Uh, Tim has a full head of hair-ish, right? Uh, I am, how you say, follically challenged, right? Uh, If I put my jeans on, you might call them loose fit. Tim's jeans are less loose. Uh, Tim's personality is kind of wild and crazy, life of the party kind of guy. He's always got a joke. He's always got something to say that's fun and clever. I tend to be a little more serious, a little more somber than him. Uh, Tim has type 1 diabetes. I have a fully functioning pancreas. (laughs) So there's some differences. Now, there's something that we share in common uh, that is uh, one of the foundational things that kind of formed our friendship, and that is a mutual love for music. So Tim and I both spent the bulk of our lives pursuing music, uh, to chase after music, wanting to be a good musician. Uh, And we both chased after that, and I would say to some degree or another, we both accomplished that, Uh, but we came at it from two different pathways. I came to it from an academic pursuit. I went to school, I took classes, I studied, I went to the library, I took the music of ancient composers and tore it apart and put it back together. I'm sorry, dead composers. (laughs) But I did put it back together. And I put it back together and learned all the rules associated with music. Tim, on the other hand, got a guitar and started practicing. He listened to the music that he enjoyed. He emulated and mimicked that music. He followed his heart in, in pursuit of being a good musician by practicing, 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 developing his own style. And so I would say we both ended up at the same place, which was to be a good musician, because that's the goal. The heart of the exercise was to be a good musician, was to make good music. But we came to it from a different perspective. And so I was doing this academic thing, and it appeared as though uh, it's a possibility that you could kind of get bogged down in that, that you could get lost in the detail of the pursuit of academic music. Whereas Tim's path was much more clear, much more obvious. And I would say, at the end of the day, Tim became a better musician than I am. And part of that is because he's significantly more gifted. I'll just admit that. That's fine, I can deal with that. But the other reason is because of the path that he chose, this more direct path, where he kind of really stuck to the heart of what it meant, which was to become a good musician. And I might have gotten wrapped up in this academic. So while Tim is out there impressing girls and playing guitar, and and being popular, I'm at the music library, like a super nerd, making sure that no one's ever going to date me. (laughs) But the good news is, I did find someone who would date me. Her name is Musical, her name is Carol, and she became my wife, and we have two kids, and things worked out great. So, let's jump into this text. Uh, Before we begin, let me pray, and then we will get to it. Father, we come to you this morning uh, grateful, grateful that you love us. Because of your love, because of what you've given to us in Christ, that we can stand before you as spotless and blameless if our hope is in him. 
And so we pray that you'll be near to us as we study this text together this morning. We pray that, that your name will be made great, that you will be exalted in the way that we pursue understanding of your word this morning. We ask you to be near. Help us to cast off whatever hindrances we bring into this room. If we come here with sadness, grief, pain, frustration, anger, fear, any of these things, Lord, help us to set those aside and to be open and ready to receive what you have to give. Lord, I pray for myself right now that you'll help me to speak clearly and correctly about your word this morning, that you will be made great. We love you. We thank you that you love us, and we pray these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, let's get to it. Verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means that as Christians, which is who Paul's talking to, right? He's writing this letter to the church in Rome. As Christians, we owe love to others. We owe it. We owe love to others. And somehow we fulfill or obey God's law when we genuinely do that. When we genuinely love one another, and we are somehow fulfilling or obeying God's law. That's what this verse means. Now, the first phrase can be misleading. The first phrase of this verse says, Owe no one anything. You might hear this text taught, or someone refer to this text as evidence that believers should ever, never ever have debt. Right? To have a mortgage is bad and wrong. To have a car loan, sinful. To own a credit card, what are you doing? Right? That somehow to have debt is wrong. Well, first of all, that's not true. And second of all, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul's using this phrase to help connect to the text that we looked at last week. Last week, we looked at the text that helped us to see that we are to submit to the governing authorities and we're to pay to people what we owe them. If we owe someone money, we pay them. If we owe them honor or respect or submission or obedience, that we give it to them. Whatever we owe, we give to them. That's what last week's text was about. And so he's taking this phrase, owe no one anything, and he's pulling it forward to make a new point, to say, you, do, you can have debts, right? So I can have a mortgage. I just need to pay it. I can have a car loan. I just need to make my payments. I can have a credit card if I use it wisely. Any of those things can indeed end up being foolish or even sinful in the ways that we deal with them, but they are not sinful in and of themselves. And so he's pulling this forward and he's saying, there's coming a day when your debts will be paid. You'll make your last mortgage payment. You'll make your last car payment. But there's another kind of debt that you owe that you will never be able to pay off. And that is to love others. To love others is a debt you owe that you cannot pay off. Every time you pay it out, the debt does not get smaller. It just keeps going and going and going. Like the Energizer Bunny. Or like a conversation with Zach Lee about Navy SEALs. He says, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Who are these people he's talking about? Who is each other? Who is another? When he talks about these things, who are these people? When he says, except to love each other, he's talking to the church. He's saying, believers, church, Christians, you should love each other. There should be a special kind of love that exists between you. We are part of a family. We are children of the household of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. But then he immediately goes on and says, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. He immediately broadens it and says, anybody outside the church, you should love. We owe love as Christians to anyone who's been created in the image of God. So then what is he saying when he says the law? For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. What law? 
What law is he talking about? Is he talking about the law we talked about last week? The laws of the land that we're supposed to submit to and obey? No. It's not as though I could be driving to the church this morning and get pulled over for speeding, which I did not do. Get pulled over. I could get pulled over for speeding, and the officer comes up, and I roll down my window, and he says, Sir, do you know why I pulled you over? I said, Well, officer, I think you think that you pulled me over because I'm speeding. However, Paul says in Romans 13 that if I love others, that I'm fulfilling the law. And I noticed this morning my neighbor's trash cans were by the curb, and so I moved those up to his house for him. So I think we're good. No, I cannot do that, right? Because that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about that kind of law. He's talking about the law, the law he talks about every other time he makes this phrase is the law of God, the Mosaic law, the law that was given to Moses and his people. And so you might say, how then can loving others somehow fulfill this law? Well, first of all, I think we'll get to that as we keep going, but I think it's important for us to see this idea of loving others, fulfilling the law, is not some new novel idea. It does not only appear here in this text, and it's this weird, ambiguous thing we have to figure out. This idea permeates the New Testament. I want to read a couple of texts to you that help us to see that. James chapter 2, verse 8 reads, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14 says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole world, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so here it's saying the entire law is filled just by loving others. Galatians 6, verse 2 reads, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so this idea that loving others is somehow the fulfillment of the law is not new and novel. This is a repeat idea that he's bringing to our attention. Let's keep going. Verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does this mean? It's the same thing as verse 8, except now he's being a little more specific and he's using a different language. He's not just saying others or another, he's saying love your neighbor as yourself. And then he lists some specific commands having to do with what it means to obey and to fulfill the law. So he's got the same thesis that he had before. Now he's using different support. He's now quoting Jesus. He's now quoting Christ from the Gospels, where, where Jesus talks of loving your neighbor as yourself. So there's this story in the, in the uh, synoptic Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where this lawyer comes to Christ and says, all right, Jesus, I got one for you. What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus goes on to say, and these two things, these two things is where all of the law and prophets hang, loving God and loving others. So he's taken the text from Deuteronomy 6 and the text from Leviticus 19 and pulled them together and said, this, this is what it's about. God's law is about this, loving God and loving others. And so when Jesus uses this phrase, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament itself. He's pulling from Leviticus. So I want us to see what he what says in Leviticus. So in Leviticus chapter 19, God is speaking to Moses, and he's giving him all these laws. He's telling him that people shouldn't lie to each other, shouldn't steal from each other. If you owe somebody money for work they've done, you should pay them. 
and on and on. And then as we get down to the end of chapter 19, we see verse 18 reads like this, Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So Jesus has pulled this language forward and said, this and loving God is where all of the law hangs. This is what the heart of the law is. And then Paul's pulling that forward into Romans and saying to you and I, love others because that is how we fulfill God's law. Then he cites these commandments, these, these four of the Ten Commandments, right? He, he's mentioning four of the latter six. So if you know about the Ten Commandments, uh, the first four have to do with how we interact with God, how we love God. And the last six are about how we interact with each other, how we love each other. And Paul is citing four of those six. He leaves out bearing false witness against one another, and he leaves out honoring your mother and father. Not because they're less important, but because these four make his point best. He's, held, he's wanting us to see what it is to obey the law. He's wanting us to see what it means to truly love one another. These four make his point about loving each other because to do these four things is not loving to others. It tears apart relationship between people. Adultery is not loving others. You do not love your spouse if you cheat on them. You do not even love the person you're cheating with by inviting them into a sinful relationship. Murder is clearly not loving others. You are not loving the person that you're killing. Stealing, coveting, these things is not loving others. These are all loving self. That's what it is to break these commandments. And so he immediately then says, I know how you guys are. I listed these four, and you're going to be like, oh, sweet, those four are the most important ones. No, he immediately says, and any other commandment. This is like a parent who calls their kids into the living room and says, all right, kids, this living room is bananas. We're going to clean it up. I'm going to pick all this stuff up. This is crazy. I can't deal with it. Come in here. Let's go. Let's pick up all these toys. Let's get them out of here. And the kids are like, pick up toys. Toys, 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 toys. Into my bedroom, and I drop them on the floor. So I moved the mess from that room to this room, and I did what mom said. Nailed it. And the mom says, whoa, 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 no, no, come back in here. You know what I meant. You know what I meant. I said pick up the toys, but I meant pick up this room, which is also what I said. So pick up your shoes and your socks and your jacket and these books. Let's go. Let's pick it up. That's what Paul's doing. Paul's saying, here's these four that make my point, but just so that you don't go running off thinking that these four are somehow more important than everything else, any other commandment, any other commandment having to do with how you interact with each other, how you're supposed to love each other, that's what I'm talking about. So then you might ask, okay, well, Carl, if it's so important, it's loving God and loving others. Why is Paul only focused on loving others? He hasn't even talked about loving God. Why not? Jesus thought it was important. Why doesn't Paul think it's important? He does. It's a good question. I think there's two answers. One, Paul has spent the first 11 chapters of this book giving us great detail on who God is and what he's done, sharing the gospel with us again, helping us to see who Jesus is and what he's done for us in his life and death and resurrection. And he's given us ample reason to understand why we should love God. And now he's turning his attention to how we ought to love others. So it is as though he's forsaking the one for the other. He just spent 11 chapters talking about this one. Now he's talking about this one. And then secondly, the idea of loving others is impossible apart from actually loving God. I cannot truly, rightly, biblically, faithfully love others unless I first love God. And the scriptures tell us this. 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 and 21, 19 to 21 say, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 
1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And then the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Jesus says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so Jesus is saying, the point, if you want people to know that you follow me, if you want people to know that you love me, they'll know by the way you love each other. Loving others is an outworking of loving God. He loves us. He gives to us the gift of faith. Our response is to love him back because of that gift. And out of the overflow of that love for God comes a love for others. So this is why Paul is not focusing on love for God. That's presumed. He's talking to Christians. He's trying to help us to see that the expectation on our lives is not to receive the gift of faith in complacency, but in activity. We are to love others like Christ loved us. So then what does it practically mean to love others, Carl? What does it really practically mean? Let's keep going. I think we'll get to that. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So again, he's making the same point, but now he's kind of flipped it and he's looking at the negative side of it. Here's what love does, here's what love does. Now he's saying, here's what love does not do. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, and therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And so he's making really just a logical argument here. He's saying, the law says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And so, if you don't do that, then you're obeying the law. And that's what love is. Love does not do those things. Love does not murder. It does not steal. It does not covet. It does not commit adultery. That's what love does not do. And therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So then what does it really mean, Carl, to love others? What does it really mean to do no wrong to them? Well, it means something quite different than our culture would say it means. Our culture would say that to love someone is just to agree with them. Whatever you want to do, whatever you like, good. Whatever you want to do, awesome. Whatever your truth is, fine with me. My love for you is expressed by not disagreeing. I support all of your decisions. I do not judge you. I do not say that there is some sort of objective moral standard that we hold up and we say, this is the thing by which we judge all of your actions and your words and your thoughts. I don't do that. That's not loving. Our culture would say that to love someone is to really to have a relationship with them where conflict does not exist. That if we have conflict, it's because I don't love you. That's what our culture would say. And then to do no wrong would be the inverse of those things. If I have conflict with you, I'm doing you wrong. If I try to tell you there's an objective moral standard, I'm doing you wrong. If I disagree with your decisions, if I call you to repentance in your sin, I'm doing you wrong. But that's not what love is. Love is always to seek what is best for the other. That's what love is. Love is to seek what is best for you. And this is why we have this language of loving your neighbor as yourself. Because how do we love ourselves? We love ourselves by doing what we believe to be best for us. That's what we always do. Every decision we make, every thought that we have, every action we take is always based on what do I think is best? It's always what do I think is best? And loving your neighbor as yourself is taking this idea that says, I love what's best for me, and it turns it outward and says, I want to do what's best for you. That is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. The way you love yourself, you should love others this way. That's what he's saying even though it might be painful for them to hear, even though it might be painful for you to say, to do and to say what is best for others is what it means to love others. We act in their best interest instead of our own. 
And so then by that definition, to call a brother or sister in Christ to repentance, to say to a brother or sister, you're sinning, you're, you're going against the scriptures, you're not doing what God wants for you, is loving. Because what's best for them is to be reconciled to God. And to call them to it is loving. To take the word of God and to hold it up and say, this indeed is the arbiter of truth. This is the standard by which we measure our thoughts and our words and our actions. And it should be yours as well. That's loving. Parents, to discipline your children is loving. It is good for me to discipline my kids. I don't like doing it. They certainly don't like it. But it is loving. It is loving to do what is best for others, even if it hurts them, even if it hurts you. And you can't do any of these things without the correct motive. You can't do any of these things without first loving God. We love because he first loved us. And his love for us then causes us to love him, which then overflows into our love for others. So again, the main point of these first three verses is just this, love one another. And love one another correctly. Love one another biblically. Love one another rightly. Paul's making the point that the law has, at its heart, always been about this, loving God and loving others. It's always been about that. Christ has come and fulfilled this Mosaic law. We are no longer bound to it. All of the Mosaic law, I don't have to do because Jesus fulfilled it for me. But there are elements of that Mosaic law that carry forward that we still must obey, but the reason we obey them is not because they're Mosaic law, because they are the heart of what God desires for his people. They remain the law of Christ. So one of the analogies we've used at Parkway a few times, and I'll use it again because I think it's helpful, is this idea of driving into Oklahoma, which I know we're all dying to do. You get on I-35 and you head north, and you're driving, and here comes a speed limit sign. It says 75. And then you cross over the border into Oklahoma, and here comes another speed limit sign. It also says 75. Maybe it says 70. I don't know. We're going to pretend like it's 75. Right? I've got my cruise control set on 75. I don't change anything. I don't hit my brakes. I don't change the speed. I just keep on driving. But the reason that I keep on driving that speed is because the law has changed jurisdictions. I used to be obeying the law of Texas. Now I'm obeying the law of Oklahoma. But what I do hasn't changed. In the same way, to love others, this idea of obeying the law, right, is brought forward into now. So I do not love others. I do not obey the law. I do not love because it's part of this Mosaic law, but because it's the heartbeat of God. The law of Christ continues to demand that I love him and that I love others. And as we cross over that border, there's literally nothing that tell, apart from the welcome to Oklahoma sign, that tells us that we've even entered Oklahoma. I mean, except for the potholes and the terrible road conditions. Get your act together, Oklahoma. Verse 11. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What does this mean? Okay, so verses 11 through 14, these next five verses, they all mean the same thing together, but he's going to look at it from different angles. And what they mean is just this. The day of Christ's return is coming. It's coming. And Christians should live in light of that day. That we should live as if that day is already here. That's what we should be doing. We should be living in light of the day where all things will be made new, that sin is no more, that death is no more, that sadness is no more. 
And he's going to use some analogies here as, he, as we get through these verses that I want to share with you, help you see what he means. When he's talking about sleeping and awake, sleeping is the state that you and I were in before we were saved. Being dead in our trespasses, being enslaved to sin, being unaware of the good news of the gospel and embracing it. To be awake is to be reconciled to God, rescued, no longer enslaved to sin, now a slave to righteousness. That is what it means to be awake. When he talks about the day and the night, he's going to be talking about the daytime being this day of the Lord that's coming when Jesus returns. And when he talks about night, we're talking about the the time that we find ourselves in now. We are now in this, what Galatians would call this present evil age, right? This idea that we are still in this place where as believers, we're set free from the bondage of sin, but yet sin remains. Effects of sin, sin are still on us. That's what, he, that's what he means by the nighttime, okay? So he says, besides this, you know the time. The hour has come to wake from sleep. He's saying, believer, if you are in Christ, you are no longer able and you should no longer live as though you're asleep. You're awake. You should be awake. Live in that day that's coming. And then he says, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What does that mean? If I'm a believer, aren't I already saved? Don't I already have salvation How can it get nearer to me if I already have it? Well, the answer is that salvation is this holistic idea. It is not just when you are justified, when Christ saves you. That is a part of your salvation, right? You indeed, if you're a believer, you are indeed justified. God has declared you to be righteous. He has adopted you into his family. He has made you his own. And yet, there is still some of the work of salvation that is not yet complete. Sanctification is something that happens now as the Spirit of God molds us and shapes us into the image of Christ day by day. There is a day coming when Christ will return and all things will be made new and those of us that have died will be resurrected and we will all receive glorified bodies and live with Christ for eternity. That day is coming. And that, all of that is part of salvation. And so when Paul says that salvation is near, he means the completed work of salvation. That day being here. That's what he means. What does he mean when he says it's nearer than when we first believed? I mean, it's literally a temporal thing that he's saying. Every day that passes, I get closer to Jesus being back and further away from when I was saved. I get closer to Jesus and further from when I was saved. That's all he's saying. That you, that day is drawing near. And then we would say, so? Why does that even matter? Why is Paul making this point? Why is he saying it's nearer now? Because as believers, that day should fill us with eagerness. That day should fill us with anticipation. That day should have us being excited and ready for Jesus to return. That's how we should be postured. Several years ago, I was hanging out with some friends. We were celebrating one of our friends, and we were hanging out on the back porch of another man's home, and we were sitting in a circle. And we're all visiting, hanging out, having a good time, and we've got like a playlist going, like an 80s playlist. Most of us grew up in the 80s, most of us in that circle. And... uh, This song comes on by Phil Collins. It's called In the Air Tonight. Some of you may be familiar with this song. If you aren't, let me tell you just a little bit about this song. It's a very long song, and at the end of the song, it's very upbeat and exciting, and that's the part of the song everybody remembers. The beginning of the song, the first three minutes and 40 seconds are kind of boring. It's just Phil Collins singing, and like, some really lame drums, electronic drums, and some synthesizer stuff. And as soon as that song comes on, one of my friends goes, ooh, hey, I know what we should do, guys. You know that drum solo that comes in the middle that breaks apart the boring part from the fun part? 
There's this drum solo. Let's see who can get that right when it gets here. And me, being a trained musician and slightly arrogant on that day, I say, that's super easy. I will nail that 100 out of 100 times. And they say, and he says, never mind, guys, I've changed my mind. Let's not do that. Let's all watch Carl and see if he can do it. So now I've got the circle of friends watching me for three minutes and 40 seconds, waiting to see, do I get it right? And I'm like, of course I'm going to get it right. I did this for a living for 20 years. I'm a musician. <laughs> and then as the song goes on, I realize, man, it sounds like that drum solo is coming like every 15 seconds. <laughs> I'm not sure when it's happening. I don't think I know. And I'm, thinking, I'm getting more and more anxious and more and more concerned, and everybody's just waiting. And then I'm like, okay, this next one, this next one, here it comes, here it comes. And I get out my fake drumsticks, and I'm like, here we go. And that's not it. It's not it. I'm like one full minute early. And everybody in the circle is like, ah! And I do the same thing. Oh, I'm so ashamed. And I throw my hands up, and I literally flip my chair backwards and roll backwards out of my chair onto the yard, which increases my shame and increases their joy. The whole thing was very embarrassing. Now, I share that story because we should be eagerly awaiting the return of Christ in a similar way, but to the nth degree. It should not be like waiting for somebody to mess up a drum solo. It should be like this anticipation that you can't even fathom. I cannot wait for his return. That's what Paul's trying to get us to see, that we should be eagerly awaiting that day. Verse 12. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So what does this mean? Same thing we were talking about before, but now he's got two explicit commands to go with it. So first he begins by the night is far gone, the day is at hand. He's saying the night, this age that we live in, this broken sinful world is going away and we are drawing near to this day of the Lord that's coming. The day is near, it's coming. That's what he wants us to see. And he says, because that's true, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. What does that mean? It's imagery. It's like this idea of changing clothing. He's saying, stop being asleep, wake up, get out of bed, take off your nasty PJs, and put on some clothing that's appropriate for the situation. As I look around the room, I see zero of you are wearing like your footy pajamas with your Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on it, and your favorite stuffed animal, and your blankie. None of you. Not a single one of you. Why not? Because that's not appropriate for in here. You wouldn't wear that to church. Probably wouldn't wear that outside the house even if you did sleep in that, and I hope that you don't, but whatever. If you like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, it's totally fine. The idea is that we are to cast off the works of darkness. We should no longer live in this day where sin has such profound effect. We should no longer live as, as if that's an okay thing for us. Now, we should live in light of this day when all sin is gone, where all sadness is gone. That's where we should live. This is what he's saying, to cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light because you want to dress appropriately for the circumstance. And he says armor because the appropriate attire for the kind of place we find ourselves in is armor because life is a war. There is spiritual warfare taking place. We should be making war against our sin and be dressed appropriately for it. And this idea of armor should hopefully, believer, have you remember Ephesians 6. Talks about the armor of God. I want to read that passage together. Ephesians 6, 11 through 18. 
which reads, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. This is the imagery that Paul's wanting to conjure up when he says to cast off the work of darkness and put on the armor of light. But when we read this passage, believers, we oftentimes will say, oh man, there's all these things I gotta do. I gotta take this, put this on, a thing, and to do this, do that. Nope, it's one thing. The armor of God is the gospel. Every single one of those things is us remembering, believing, resting in, and having confidence in the gospel. He says the belt of truth, it is the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word that reveals to us who Jesus is and what he's done in the scriptures. The breastplate of righteousness, righteousness is what Christ gives to us that is credited to us because of his life and death and resurrection. The shoes of readiness, it says right there in the text, it is by the gospel of peace that they're given. The shield of faith. Faith in what? In Christ. The helmet of salvation. Salvation is accomplished for us by God through Christ. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, proclaiming the truth of the gospel to us. All of this armor is not a bunch of separate things. It's the gospel. And so we as believers find ourselves living in this place that sometimes we refer to as the already and the not yet. We're in between this already. Jesus has come. Jesus has lived the perfect life that you and I were supposed to live but don't. Jesus has died the death on the cross that you and I deserve to die but don't have to. Jesus has conquered sin and death through his triumphant resurrection. That work is done. And yet, there is something that has not yet happened, which is that he's going to return and make all things new. And we're in between these two places. We live in between these two places And because we live there, because we're in this present evil age, and in this, in Paul's kind of analogy here, he's talking about being in the night. Because that's true, there's still what Jeff likes to call the residue of sin that's left. We're no longer enslaved to it. We no longer have to answer that phone when temptation calls. But there's still the effects of sin that remain. And because that's true, Paul's exhorting us to cast off those nasty PJs and put on your armor and be prepared to make war against your sin and eagerly wait and anticipate that day when Jesus comes back. Verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. And so Paul's point remains the same. But now he's going to remind us of some of the activities that our flesh is prone to want. Some of these activities that might happen in the, in the nighttime. Because he says, walk properly as in the daytime. He's saying, walk in holiness, walk in righteousness, as if that day's here. Walk as in the daytime, Paul says. So these first two pairs are kind of nighttime activities. People like participate in these things in the evening and the, the sun's gone down. Which fits Paul's metaphor for a day and night. But also helps us to see that there are desires of the flesh that we need to make war against, that we should not be giving in to these things. And the last pair, the last pair, quarreling and jealousy, 
they go to the idea of tearing apart relationship. Right? Paul wants us to see that we are to love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you're quarreling with them, if you're jealous, if you are participating in these sexually immoral behaviors, you are not loving others. So his point throughout remains the same, to love others. And that quarreling and jealousy looks forward to chapter 14 that we'll get to next week, where Paul's going to get into some of the more uh, granular details of what it means for us to interact with one another and to love one another. So for the believer, this idea of day and night kind of overlap for us. We literally are in the night. We're literally in this place where sin still has an effect, but we should live in light of that day. And Paul's saying, which, which one are you going to live in? Are you going to live where you are? Or are you going to live where you've been declared to be? You've been declared to be righteous by God. If you are in Christ, you've been declared to be righteous. Live in that way. Verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What does this verse mean? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Put on a person? Am I supposed to give Jesus a piggyback ride? What does that mean? He's using more clothing kind of analogy, right? He's saying to put on something that you have been declared to be. He's saying that he's got us, he's got us changing clothes. And he's doing that a lot. If you notice, there's, there's a bunch of clothing things. This is like Dan Jones trying to pick out which cargo shorts he's going to wear. Dan Jones is one of our deacons. I have permission to make that joke, and I make it preemptively to get him back for a joke that he made at my expense that I will share with you shortly. But he's saying, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, let your identity, believer, be what it is. Your identity is in Christ. Don't have the identity of a broken sinner that's been paid for. Don't have the identity of a guy who struggles and can't handle it. That's been paid for. Your identity is in Christ. Everything that Christ has earned belongs to you. We share in his inheritance. We are counted as sons and daughters of the Most High King. Wear that, believer. Put that on and wear it with confidence. You wear Christ and you wear your armor. You are fit for the circumstances that you're in, which is a place of battle, a place of war against sin. But your identity is already in Jesus, and that should give you great comfort. So he's saying we should let our identity be what it is. Behave as though you have already attained that which God has declared you to be, righteous. There is coming a day when that righteousness will truly be yours in full. But for now, he has declared you to be righteous, and so you are. So walk in that. And he says, make no provision for the flesh. What does that mean, make provision? That means to provide for. Don't provide for your flesh. Don't make pathways that lead to sin. He says, more than just fleeing from temptation. Paul is exhorting us not to make a path for future potential sin to actively work against the patterns of thought and behavior that would prepare the way. So this is, I, I'm a married man, and so I don't go looking up ex-girlfriends in social media. That's not inherently sinful in and of itself, but it's foolish. It's making provision for my flesh. It's paving the way toward potential future sins. Paul's saying, don't do that. You should be putting up barriers between you and that. Don't play those games. This is the idea of like fudging your taxes just a little. Get a little bit better return, fudge a few numbers. Nobody's going to look. That's not going to be a red flag for the IRS. They're not going to audit me. I'm just going to get a sweet return. It's no big deal. I am paving the way. I am 
making provision for my flesh to rise up and then for me to then give in and to gratify its desires. Every adulterous relationship that anyone has ever had began with something innocent, something that isn't all by itself sinful, a conversation they shouldn't have had, an exchange that shouldn't have existed. When I was younger, I don't remember how old, somewhere between seven and now. I, don't, I was little. I don't remember when I was. I was young. My family took a little trip to Carlsbad Caverns, and if you've never been there, man, it's amazing. It's beautiful. And so we're in there. We're underground. We're in these caves. They've got lights everywhere. We've got a guided tour, and it's just amazing. I'm just this kid. I'm just like, just amazed. And I'm in these caves that ought to be kind of scary, but I've got my dad. He's right here next to me. I'm cool. And so we go, and I'm amazed. At some point, our group and another group cross paths in the middle. And I think I got with the wrong group, but I don't know that. And I'm just, And then, I think maybe the lights got dimmer, or it got darker, or I realized I'm deep underground. But for whatever reason, I'm like, oh, this is cave. This is where bears live. Uh, I'm kind of nervous. I think I'm going to hold my dad's hand. So I reach up, and I grab my dad's hand. It feels funny. So I look up, and what looks down at me is a grizzly bear. And no, I'm just kidding. It's not a bear. It's just a different man, different man that's not my dad. And so he's like, whoa, kid, what are you doing? And I'm like, that jacket's very similar to my father, but that's not my dad. See ya. And I turn around, and I run the other way by myself into the caves, which is foolish. I'll give you. But the good news is I was reunited with my family later. But the idea here is that I thought that because I was with my dad, everything was fine. I don't have anything to worry about. I don't have any responsibility for making sure that things are okay. I don't have any responsibility for making sure that I actually am with my dad. I just whimsically go through life thinking he's here, everything's fine. And then when I realize I'm not near him and things are not going well, I run back to the place that I think safety exists, but I'm also wrong. Safety doesn't exist back there by myself. Staying with a group is where safety would be. And so for us as believers, there's this idea that we might think because we are saved, we have nothing to do. God's got me. I've got nothing to worry about, nothing to fear. And in a sense, that's true. The scriptures proclaim, do not fear. Do not be anxious. Your God will never leave you or forsake you. He fights for you. Those things are true. But we also have the responsibility to participate in the work of sanctification that the Spirit is doing. And we should be making war against our sin. We should be making sure that we actually are with our Father. And that we should not flee back to the things that give us comfort. The things where we think safety exists. Running back into that darkness. Running back to where our sin exists. We should not be doing that. But we drift. We don't drift ever toward righteousness. We drift for, towards licentiousness. We drift towards sin. If we will go through life complacent thinking, God's got this, I've got nothing to do, no responsibility of any kind, then I will indeed drift towards sin. I will make provision for my flesh. I will fall back into old patterns. Now, when I told this story about the Carlsbad Caverns to a group of men the other day, one of the men said, oh, well, that's probably why they call it Carlsbad Caverns. And then Dan Jones said, no, 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 that's not true. If they named it after what Carl did, it would be called Carl's a Disappointment Caverns. <laughs> that's Captain Cargo shorts right there. But it's funny, so I thought I'd tell you. So this idea is that we are not to be complacent. We are to be making war against our sin. This is not waiting 
until temptation has come and I've given in to be like, ooh, I need to fight. No, we fight now. We put up barriers between us and that temptation. We truly flee from it. Now, some of you might hear this exhortation and you might think to yourself, oh, sweet, fighting sin, getting checklists ready. I'm doing this. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. Man, I'm going to nail it. And I'm going to earn me some sweet privileges with God because of my hyperdiligence. And we might swing the pendulum all the way over to legalism. And so if, you're, if your temptation is lust, then you'll say, well, piece of cake. I'm a man. I'm married. I will never talk to another woman in my life. I will only talk to my wife and maybe my daughters. Well, that's too far. If your sin is gluttony, if you tend to run to food as your comfort, as some sort of idol, and you might say to yourself, well, then I just won't eat. I'll just skip eating. Well, that's unfaithful. You've got to eat. So it's not about saying, okay, as a believer, I can resist this uh, telephone call, this temptation. I don't have to answer that phone. As someone who's lost, you have to answer the temptation. You have to answer it and be a sinner. But as a believer, you don't have to. But it's not saying, okay, I don't have to. And I will smash this phone and smash all the phones in the house and go tell all my friends, phones are terrible. No, we put up barriers between us and our sin that we might not make provision for our flesh. So in our effort to stay away from licentiousness, let us not swing the pendulum all the way to legalism. So, what does this whole text mean? It means we are to love one another. It's that simple. Except it's not that simple. Loving one another is hard. What's being asked of us here is not an easy thing. It is difficult because of the propensity of our hearts to turn inward and say, I want to do what's best for me. Because of this sinful inclination of our flesh that says, I want to do what feels good. I don't want to hurt your feelings. I don't want you to think I'm a bad person. I don't want to interact with you in a way that makes me feel icky. That I don't actually love you. I don't actually turn that desire outward and to love others. But the good news is, church, we have a perfect example of what this looks like. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to ask the question, what does it look like to love others? I'm not sure. Because we can be sure. We have a perfect example. Jesus. Jesus loved others perfectly. Jesus loved others in a way that genuinely turns outward and says, what's best for you? What's best for you is that I die, is what Jesus says. What's best for you is that there is a way for you to be reconciled to God, and I will provide it through my death through my burial, through my resurrection, I will provide for you a way to be reconciled to God. Jesus Christ accomplishes this for you. And he does not only do it for the people that are near him that he likes, which is easy. It's easy to be nice to your neighbor who's nice to you. He loves his enemies. You know who that is? You and me. Before he comes and rescues us, that's who we are. We are his enemies. We are not neutral before salvation. We are enemies of God, and he comes and says, I love you. I will pay for you with my life. What a gift. Believer, if you want to truly love others, look to Christ. Look at what he's done. He has paid for you with his very life. He has done all that needs to be done that you might have life. He has given his up. He has loved you to the best that can be done. He has loved others. He has loved even his enemies to the point of death. 
even death on a cross. May we be that kind of people. May we be a church that loves others the way that Christ loved us. Let's pray as the men come forward to serve communion. Gracious Father, we come this morning and we bless your name. We say thank you for being our God. We say thank you for giving us your Son. That this charge on our lives to love you and to love others is easy to say and yet hard to do. And we can do no good thing apart from you. And so we come and we beg. We ask that you would draw near to us. Give us strength. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment. Help us to see rightly what it means to love others, what it means to love our neighbor as ourself. These are phrases that we see and read and say often in the world of church. And yet oftentimes we don't embrace them and understand their truth. And so we pray that you'll help us this morning, Lord. Help us to see correctly. We need you. We love you. We're grateful for who you are and for what you've done. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen.